Welcome to another episode of the Hope Motivates Action podcast. This week's guest is Karen Gallagher-Burt, a fellow Calgarian and a mental health advocate who approaches her work, her family, and her community with love, faith, and an abundance of bubbly personality. I met Karen at a Hope conference as she was sharing her personal story of lived experience with declining mental health and navigating a sometimes terrifying and always confusing public health system designed to support those who need it the most. Listen in as Karen inspires us with her hope in a future better than today through persistence, action, and faith. As always, if you're interested in any of the books, resources, and tools mentioned in this episode, all the links you'll need can be found in the show notes of your favorite podcast player, or head to the blog and pod page of my website at expertinhope.com, and you'll find them all there too. This podcast is a labor of love because I know that spreading hope for a future better than today has incredible power. Conversations like this one really reinforce that hope. So without any more delay, let's get to it. Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Hope Motivates Action podcast. It is my absolute pleasure today to introduce you to Karen Gallagher-Burt. She is a compassion curator and empathy engineer. Karen, so wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I met Karen at the most recent uh, National Hopes Talk, Hope Talks Conference, (laughs) um, put on in association with Bell Let's Talk Day at the end of January. And Karen was a speaker um, sharing her personal story, her powerful story of hope and its relationship to her family. And I'm really excited to have you here to share more about that and how you're incorporating that work with, with CMHA as well, the Canadian Mental Health Association. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, I'm delighted to share what, I guess, why this is so important to me and how um, I think hope involving compassion, compassion for oneself is what kind of really is the foundation for all the work that I have done my whole career. I love uh, what you say here in your bio, and maybe I'll take a minute just to introduce uh, what you do and who you do it for uh, a little bit for the audience as well. But I love what you say. Karen is determined to conquer the world with love, hope, and kindness. That is just so powerful. Karen is an intentional leader who delights in empowering individuals and groups to engage with their communities and bring compassion to their workplace. Through inspiring leadership and a warm, bubbly personal style, Karen ignites passion and purpose in the organizations and individuals she is privileged to serve. That's powerful too, privileged to serve. Sounds like this is really, truly a passion of yours. You know what? It's, it's, I think it's almost beyond a passion. It's part of my DNA at this mm-hmm. point in life. Um, and I guess for me, it's easy to sort of give you a bit of background of why this is so critical to me. Um, I think I'm like most Canadians. I'm, I'm pretty average, pretty middle class. I'm the fourth of four girls to immigrants to Canada. Um, I had military father, so I've lived all over the world. I've had the privilege of living in Europe. Um, in different parts of Canada, and ended up in Calgary, oh my goodness, 37 years ago with the man that I fell in love with, who was a Cape Bretoner. Mm-hmm. Uh, we met in Edmonton and then migrated south. And I've had, um, I think, a combination of tenacity and persistence and some good luck along the way, where he and I have you know, been married 35 years, have created I think what people observe to be a wonderful life, and I truly think it is, but just like the movie, A Wonderful Life, Mm -hmm. there's always things going on behind the scenes that people don't get to see. Mm 
And those are the things both from childhood through to our early marriage that have sort of made it um, a place where hope not only has to be part of our daily life, but has to permeate all of our behaviors and our actions, um, especially considering the work we did early on in our marriage. So we married, oh my gosh, 1985. I can't mm-hmm. believe I say that. Um, and uh, we are privileged to have given birth to two children. We have a girl and a boy. Um, and as my husband says, that's the millionaire's family. There's no other kinds and he wanted to be done. And I managed to convince him that we should become foster parents. Mm. And so for the next 20 plus years, we raised another 46 children. So 48 kids. Um, we've snuck two more in there, friends of our children's. <laughs> so 50 kids now we've raised. And particularly with the foster children, you cannot do that kind of work without belief and hope in people and their ability to change, their ability to find um, whatever motivates them to change and to do things differently. Kids come into care because families are in trauma. Kids go home because families have the hope and the ability and the tenacity to change their behaviors. And so that's really where I think in the first part of our life together, where hope really started to play a really key role. And you had to work with children and families from a place of hope and belief that they could do what they needed to do to be reunited. So that's kind of where it started is in that kind of work. That's incredible work. 50 kids? My gosh. 50. I I, my even... gray hair is very natural. You can't see it, but it's very natural. <laughs> I, I can't even imagine one child. You you parents are incredible humans. Seriously. <laughs> um, wow, that is so, so powerful. You mentioned finding what motivates people. How do you find what motivates other people? I mean, it's hard enough finding what motivates ourselves, let alone oh, in other people. You know, I always think um, you can go back to the Maslow's hierarchy of needs and that everybody needs, you know, food, clothing, shelter, all the way up to self-actualization. But I think that what's different for most people is that when you have those basic needs, and I say that very clearly because many of the families I work with, the basic needs weren't even there. Um, But once the basic needs are met, I think that all of our transactions with people Um, are ways of them either asking for help and support or giving help and support. Everything comes with a please or a thank you in a conversation and a dialogue. So finding what motivates people to me is not difficult. Mm. You listen to what's going on for them. You listen to um, their language. Then you watch for how they, they move and they interact. You look for the congruency. And very quickly, you'll find out what it is that for them is... um, passion provoking, uh, what makes them angry. I think what makes you angry is as important to pay attention to as what makes you happy. Um, and I think that that's part, that's part of hope in itself because hope by, is not by itself. It doesn't, I don't think it ever exists as an entire entity unto itself. It's aspirational and it is motivational in what it does and how it inspires you to behave. I like that. Um, that it's aspirational, which indicates that future expectation of of positive result, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I know when you hear that, I think I remember looking at some of the religious side of things where they said faith, hope, and charity are the three things. Yet I find I get stuck. I mean, I work in the world of charity, but I find that faith and hope are the two that work best for me. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be a spiritual hope, but I think of faith as being um, it's a confidence or a trust in either a person or a thing. And it's not based on proof. 
but it's based on what you want. Hope is different because hope is an attitude Mm -hmm. and it permeates things. Um, It is optimistic, but I think really um, intelligent hope is optimistic with realism put in there. Um, It really is that future state, like you say, but there's more than that because it has to have uh, behaviors behind it and action behind it and goal setting behind it. So I don't know. You can have hope that you'll win the lottery. Your odds are pretty poor. Go ahead. Defer that one night, talk about it and pretend, well, what if we won $70 million? But I don't think that's the kind of hope most of us uh, think about when we talk about hope or when we measure how it is in our life. You are so well aligned with um, with my belief about hope. Um, hope is very personal, right? Our definition of hope is very, very personal. And yep. but what you said about goal setting and action and and overcoming obstacles to get to that positive future. Um, yep. that is that is hope theory. All of all of my work is around the science of hope and hope theory says goals plus agency, which is your intrinsic motivation, plus pathways thinking, which is your ability to find alternatives. I mean, you nailed it. (laughs) We are well aligned there. Um, Well, there's a a researcher I've read, and you may have read some of his work, um, Snyder. Um, Oh, yes. Snyder, yeah. So when you get into his work, I love the fact that he ties in the fact that um, he takes it and simplifies what you said. I know where I want to go. I know how to get there. And when I believe I can do it. So I think it's the three combos that that he talks about. And for me, it's that simplicity is that hope cannot be hung out there like a star in the sky where you don't know what's there. There's got to be gravity. There's got to be rotation. There's got to be other things around to keep that star present. And hope is the same thing. It's not sitting there all by itself. There's forces you can't see that are part of it. And some of that is that ability to vision and create goals and have that persistence to achieve them. Yeah, it was Dr. Schneider that came up with hope theory. So I yes. am very familiar. Smart guy. Yep. Smart guy. <laughs> that, is, that is awesome. And then have you also read uh, Shane Lopez, Dr. Shane Lopez? Do you know what? I haven't. No. So he was a mentee of Dr. Schneider. Um, okay. And he was the first one that I've read or recognized that really sort of took hope theory and the science of hope out of academia and into... Mm application for us as the average human. Um, And he was doing some incredible work. He worked at um, Gallup as a researcher in this area. He was Mm. um, educated as a scientist, but he, he had this beautiful way of translating the concepts of hope and, and, and positive psychology as well, but into Mm -hmm. our real life. Um, He passed away in 2017 so we really we, we've lost we've lost his power, um, but there's a, another scientist that I've learned about recently. Um, Chan Hillman is also doing work in this space, and he's um, he's in Oklahoma, I believe, doing uh, sort of taking Dr. Lopez's work and and moving it the next place, you know, from from Snyder to Lopez to to mm-hmm. Hellman, um, which is really really cool. I love. I love that we're focusing on this, that the research backs up what we anecdotally know, you know, um, to be able to, to turn it into real life tools that we can use, use in our life. And I know in your work with CMHA, I know that practicality and, and giving people the tools um, is really important to you. Do you know, it's, it's important, but you have to consider where someplace like CMHA comes from. So Canadian Mental Health Association has been around 65 years. 
And it came into being when folks were institutionalized Mm -hmm. and they would come out of, say, in in Canada or here in Alberta would be maybe Pinoca um, or Alberta Hospital, as it was known. And folks would come out of there and they would have very little hope in terms of what they could be and become. And the hope often was carried by their families. Mm -hmm. And it was the people around them that saw them as more than their illness Um, They saw all the other capacities they had, that they were funny, that they were artistic, that they, you know, maybe were brilliant at something, that they were also mentally ill. And they didn't talk then about um, the hopeful side of recovery. And now we've done the work and the research that says uh, everyone can pretty much come out of most mental illnesses. You can move into a recovery phase. There's the odd one that you'll struggle a little bit longer and it'll be more pervasive and uh, more day-to-day um, challenging. But most mental illness you can come out of. And that recovery road, part of the foundation of that is being hopeful that you can change, that things can be better. And if you don't have that permeate your behavior, it doesn't work. We, have an, we even have a course um, that's entirely about hope, which I think is quite fascinating. How do I not um, so it's know a, this? It's a, co- a course called Hopes and Dreams. It's three sessions long, so about six hours. And basically the synopsis of the course is, as much as we want to, we can't tell the future. But in that course, you have the space to explore your future possibilities. You will discover and act on realistic, positive, and future goals. So one of our courses, our foundational courses in recovery college is about having hopes and dreams, but then landing those in realistic and action-based practice. Oh, you're Science speaking works. my language. <laughs> this is your language of love. <laughs> this is my language of love. You're absolutely right. So recovery college, tell me, what is recovery college? So Recovery College is part of CMHA's suite of services. So again, go back to what I said of where we've come from. Probably the last 20 years, we've been changing our services. So as an organization, we have a great relationship with Alberta Healthcare. We offer many um, support programs for folks coming out of hospital really seriously quite ill and moving on that journey. But it's the average person who maybe they haven't been hospitalized or maybe, you know, something recently has happened that is complicated. Um, So you think of depression, you can have situational depression, you can have a more deep dysthymic depression. So something bad's happened. Go back to the 2013 flood. When that hit Calgary, um, the people that funded CMHA said, okay, you have to go beyond that 150, 200 people you serve in your homes because now you have 150,000 Calgarians who, based on that experience, were experiencing crises. And some of that became mental health concerns. And so that challenged us to think about things differently. Two things came out of that. Um, well, actually three. One was our peer model, which we have expanded. So we really believe in the power of people with lived experience And we have many ways of working with them. We have a whole training program for people to become uh, peers that are able to support someone. 120 hours of training, lots of support. We also brought in at the same time um, Recovery College, which you mentioned. So Recovery College is based on some work that's been done in the UK and in uh, Australia. And over there, what they decided to do is to set up, and it's not just a physical location, it's a concept. Uh, So set up 
classes that are built around recovery and moving forward with whatever's going on for you, mental health-wise, substance use-wise. So we have a suite of about 40 courses, just over 40, where folks with lived experience, those peers, and academics, people with a background in education, work together to co-design, co-create, and co-deliver all of these different courses. So the courses, the basic course is called the Art of Friendship. It's an eight-session course that really teaches those maybe who have been, maybe you've been having a substance use concern and you're just now able to come out, you're sober, you're trying to stay that way. But a couple of drinks was what made you feel you were able to connect. So now you have to relearn how to do that without the substance. Art of Friendship will give you some of those skills. Maybe you're a teenager. You're trying to figure out how it is to get your voice. We have a course on finding your voice. We have a course on uh, adulting 101. We have a course on body image. And that one could be any age, but particularly for youth. So those courses are there for folks to really have a chance to do some reflection work. There's definitely some coursework with it. Um, But at the end of it, it's all about growth and it's all about your recovery journey, whatever that looks like. The bonus part is they're free. We don't charge a penny for any of our courses. We offer most of them downtown at our location, but we also teach in about 19, 20 different locations around the city from South Health Campus out to um, the Airdrie Food Bank. We're in different locations teaching our courses. So we found that those courses are another way to build hope, to build connection, and Mm -hmm. to build build a sense of belonging and community. Yeah. Very, very cool. Um, Yeah. how like so impressive the funding model the the more i do this work the more i learn about the 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 services and the options that are available to us as canadians specifically um mm-hmm. is unbelievably it, it's just unbelievable like full stop i i can't believe how much is out there if yep. we only knew where to find it and i love that we have those kind these kinds of conversations so that we can sort of spread that message yes. um, because what i've heard is that resources are hard to find they are scarce like what do you say to people with that as their perception so i i do think that there's an essence of truth to that and that it is hard to find navigation of the system mm-hmm. is complicated and unless you have the tenacity or someone in your world that's going to be that person that navigates for you it can be difficult i'll tell you where it works really well it works really well if you are, if you are mentally struggling and you're having a bit of a breakdown let's say you're suicidal Our emergency rooms are fantastic. The folks that you deal with on the mental health side of things are fantastic with Alberta Health Services. However, when it's not critical, the wait times, the times to get into things can be challenging because uh, there's just not enough services and not not enough um, people available resources to provide it. But say you've gone to Emerge, they've identified some things and you've got some things going on. And then all of a sudden you, you get out of hospital and they say, okay, call us, this is your next appointment. Most likely, you're going to wait two to three months to do a proper intake. And then it could be months after that to get services. All the not-for-profits step in there. That's where we all have our different niches. Uh, And that's, I think, where it gets complicated because most not-for-profits, we don't have marketing budgets. Mm -hmm. So it's not like we can put up signs on the C-train or big billboards and say, this is who we are and what we do. So we rely on our own networks to share. We rely, rely on relationships with folks in Alberta Health Services. And so our services being all free, um, when folks start to come in, they tend to wander in one area 
And then all of a sudden, it's kind of like 9 million connections happen and all these opportunities are there. I always remind people that you need to use something like 211. And those who don't know the 211 number, I describe it this way. All the 11 numbers are assigned. 311 gets you the city. 411 gets you um, your phone numbers, your your directory. Uh, 611 gets you, I think the 611 is now your phone service. Yeah. 711 will be assigned. 811 is health link. 911, hopefully you know that one. But 211, when you call that number, you get a trained professional who can support you in finding whatever service you want without knowing the name. So you just call up and say, hey, I'm looking for mental health help. I'm someone who's come out of hospital and I'm looking for some help. Well, they use your postal code to come up with two or three things that might be the perfect match for you. Bonus side is they'll offer you a call back to find out if the service has worked. Mm-hmm. And that's 24-7. They also do it online. They also do it by text now. And so there's no excuse not to be able to find it if you know to use 211. Again, mm-hmm. 211 is not well advertised. <laughs> right. No budget. <laughs> yeah. Um, we like how innovative, you know, you say we've moved into even texting now, right? Meeting people where they're at. We're giving yep. them all the options online, on the phone, on text, whatever. Um, we talked off air about, about innovation and the things that people are doing. So you're talking about individual services and innovative ways to help with individuals. What thoughts do you have around innovating in our workplace in mental health? Oh, I love that question because I I have had many opportunities over the last few years, but particularly the last year, to work with different corporations who not only are embracing the fact that they have to address psychological work safety, but they also recognize that um, productivity, happiness in the workplace, everything goes up when mental health is a conversation that takes place on a regular basis. Um, I won't name companies, but I can tell you that some of the big ones downtown have had us in, and I know they've had other folks in, to sort of say, well, what could that look like? They start with Mental Health 101, and then from there it expands to what other programs can come in. Uh, And then they look at ways to incorporate mental health and well-being as part of their culture. And that's a shift that I've really seen probably in the last two to three years in companies. And the big ones are paying attention to it. Uh, because even if you are only an inhuman person and looked at dollars and cents, it makes dollars and cents work. And it's financially quite viable when you take care of your humans. I don't know. There's great, I would say there's great products, there's great processes. You can have a great price point, but it's your people that make any company successful. And the minute you lead with that, then guess what? Everything else goes up and your opportunity to be a company that does well and sustainable that becomes much more pervasive if your people are cared for. Right. If you invest in the lives of your people, oh, yeah. or invest in, invest in the lives of your company. Well, every company I've worked with, well, a few of them have shared their statistics with me. And as a general rule, when they share with me something around, say, the number one reason for short-term disability in any company, guess what it is? Mental health. health, Totally. If you look at the second most, uh, if you look at what's um, long-term disability, it's either one or two on long-term disability for most companies. So if you entirely just looked at if we could invest in that differently and you could take those claims down, and I'm not saying that people don't need claims, they don't need those times, but all of us, I think I've had my time when I've been off work with uh, mental health and a physical challenge, we all want to go back to work. Um, We want to be there. So the faster and the better services you can provide when you're having something going on, but even beforehand, 
that's going to save a lot of money. But most importantly, it's going to take care of a lot of people. Do you have any advice for those of us working in an organization that isn't embracing mental health in the workplace, whether they're uncomfortable, they're risk averse, whatever that looks like? You know, I think that um, I found that most companies are open to the dialogue if you find the right people at the right time. Um, but also if you're in a company where maybe they, they think of mental health as being one of those soft, fuzzy things that we don't talk about, I think that there's a lot of data out there that can show you. Um, so look for that financial return on investment where the return on investment for mental health um, financially can make a big difference. And I find that that's a way sometimes to get the naysayers in. Mm -hmm. The other part is also, uh, I don't care who you are, you have a story everybody has a story. So my favorite is to go into a room and I will sometimes be teaching a mental health 101. I will ask everybody to stand up and then I will say everyone who has a story in their family, their immediate circle of friends, their, um, their coworkers, everyone here who has a story around mental health or substance use that they can speak to, please sit down. And everybody sits. And if mm -hmm. I have one or two people standing, then I have an opportunity to say to them, then you're one of the privileged few or your memory's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, you can joke about it, but I never ask them to stand up if they have a problem. I ask them to sit down. And then I talk about, I ask you to sit down because in this moment, I want you to let that burden of stigma go. I want you to sit. I want you to let it go because everyone has a story. My husband and I joke a lot. We'll go to parties or social occasions and we're there half an hour to an hour and I'm off in the corner with another man. And that <laughs> sounds funny, but reality what it is, is they find out what I do for a living and then they need to talk to me and they start with my daughter, my son, my wife, my somebody else. And if you listen long enough, it will actually come down to it's actually them. It's one of those I'm asking for a friend situations when really it's about them. and. I've had some of the most meaningful conversations and I've been able to just validate someone and say, you know what, you're not alone. There's more of us like that than you could possibly imagine. And if all they get in that night was they got a couple of glasses of wine and a little validation, you know what, it's not a bad thing. They opened a door and maybe they'll consider the possibility. I'm so well aligned with you. I've, I'm, I've also had a similar experience with this work. I am finding it's resonating so well with men. We are just... Men and boys are are, allow, yep. are are feeling allowed to come to the table to have these conversations, right? I mean, we as women were raised that it was okay to have these conversations. And I yep. love, I am so hopeful to see that men and boys are also feeling empowered to have these conversations. Well, and I see it with my children. Um, my son, my baby turns 30 next week and mm -hmm. my daughter turns 33. She'll hate me for saying that in mm -hmm. May. Um but my son particularly, so my, and my daughter's friends. So in that age group, that 30 to 35 for men, um, my daughter has experienced two or three young friends from high school committing suicide. And a lot of the conversation that's been had in their group of friends has been around the expectation for men to perform and be at a certain level by their early thirties is so high. And we all know that nowadays 
everything seems to take a little longer. Um, kids take a little longer to get any education they want, and that's okay. Um, they take longer to get in long-term committed relationships. Some of them are choosing not to buy houses. It's very different from someone like me, who's the very last year of the baby boomers, what we were expected to do. And, but yet their parents still have different expectations. So they've got these mixed messages and they reach that early thirties. And then they're like, I'm nothing. Mm -hmm. They have no sense of value for what they bring to the table because they're not, you know, a high performing career. They're not, they're maybe just living a good life, but someone, something in their brain has told them that that's not enough. And I think that that's a huge, that for me right now is those men 30 to 40, but 30 to 35, particularly, yeah. it got my heart right now because yeah. there needs to be a way to connect and allow them that space. Oh, I would love to talk to you more about that because I, that is also what's calling to me in the last yeah. six months is, is, is just that. And I know even in my own family, um, it's been so transformative just to see through the education and through the awareness, the community that me and my family have been involved with in the last mm. three years. Um, giving someone the language to use to have these conversations is unbelievably empowering, right? Yeah. Even just to know what words to use to describe how you're feeling um, that I've always taken for granted. I just knew that stuff. I was taught it was something that was part of my education as a woman. Um, yes. But it, it wasn't. And I've, I've, I will never take that for granted again because of the transformation I've seen in my own family. And it's so cool. It's well, so I've cool. all the kids I've fostered, um, you know, the 46 kids, the mm -hmm. vast majority were male. Yeah. And it's an interesting phenomenon. It's more boys come into foster care than girls. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times it's single parents, particularly single moms. And these young men get to a point where they're pushing back and challenging. And moms are dealing with their own crises. And for whatever reason, they can't do it in that moment. But one of the things I learned, because I was always, when I went into fostering, my belief was you just love them. Um, love was all it takes, all you need, and you can make everything right. And it took one kid for me to rearrange my thinking. <laughs> and I had one kid at three where some of the behaviors were quite extraordinary. And if I told you or someone about them, they would look at you and go, a three-year-old child did that? And I'd be like, yep. And what, what I learned was, is that love was a bonus. That when the kids came to me, what they needed was they needed structure. They needed safety. They needed discipline and consequences that were natural and learned and explained. But when you gave them all of those things and that um, absolute place where it was a soft landing, and that didn't mean I was easy because I was a very, I'd say, firm parent. Um, but when you gave them all those things, then you could get to that place where they have safety and security. Now I can start teaching them how to, how to value their emotions, how to value what they have. I had one young man that we fostered for many years. And um, when he came to us at 11, he was angry, angry, angry all the time. He led with anger on everything and took us about three years. And he was with us almost five years. Uh, took us three years to get him to a place where instead of hitting, he could use his words. And I had a teacher that um, they, I mean, he had a little power struggle with. They both owned their share in it. Um, but I remember him saying to her, I'm so angry with you. I feel like hitting you. And the teacher kicked him out of the class and then was going to consequence him and, and kick him out of school. And I went to that school like a bull in a China shop and I went, no freaking way is this going to happen. I used another F word. And um, the teacher was quite adamant that, you know, he threatened me. And I said, no, he didn't. I said, he used his words. 
He used his words and he told you how he felt. You cannot punish my child for telling you how they felt. And I fought systems like that my whole life when I've taught young people to say how they really feel. And the system and the world still pushes back at them. And I think that's where it starts is you teach those behaviors and you teach that essence of I matter uh, young by teaching kids how to use those tools and how to do that. And that creates a hope and a belief in themselves that I can feel these things, mm -hmm. that these things can be part of my life. And yes, I'm still a good person. I still am a accepted person and that I can go forward in whatever area I pursue and be truthful and be honest and be transparent and be vulnerable by sharing my feelings because I have a right to be heard. And that in itself is hopeful. Oh, so hopeful. And what a, what a proud parent moment, right? Oh, I've had a few of those. I've had a few fights with some teachers in some schools, but you know what? I, I always think about it that those people are overwhelmed. I've met some brilliant educators and they have often been overwhelmed. Too many kids, too much going on, too many things. It's not an excuse, but it's the fact that I will, I'll step back and say um, they often didn't know what to do and they often didn't know the circumstances behind. Well, and, and you take the compassionate approach, right? I mean, you, we talked about that at the very beginning. Oh. I truly believe compassion has the power to change the world. You don't know. You never know the story. You'd never know what's going on. I would always, I say to my kids, assume something's going on. Don't go with, the, oh, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Go with the assumption that there's something difficult going on in that person's life. And your brief moment of kindness and compassion can be something that makes them make a difference in their lives and not, not in some cases, not kill themselves today. Um, that's, that's things that I have learned. The other part of hope that I think resonates so much for me is that I worked for six years at the distress center mm -hmm. and I worked where you were dealing with suicide, um, and suicidal ideation all the time. So on average, the distress center, when I was there, would get almost 500 calls a day. And one of the things that we would often ask in our suicide assessment is how hopeful someone was or if they felt hopeless. And I have learned through the work that I've done and all the education I have that hopelessness is one of those measures of how likely a person is or is not to commit suicide. And so when you understand that hopelessness has that power, you have to understand that hope has the opposite power. And in that conversation with someone who at the beginning is hopeless and wants to die by suicide, you could have a 20-minute to 30-minute conversation with them, use some very specific tools and techniques. But honestly, it was human-to-human -human contact and someone saying to them and helping them see that the light at the end of the tunnel is not a train and it's not coming at you, that if you just tip your head up and you look, there is something better out there. And if you could get them through that for that call and maybe for the next 48 hours, there was opportunity for hope. And that's what we did. We were harbingers of hope. I think mm -hmm. that's the whole thing is that helping people see hope and helping people know that they have uh, an ability to impact their own lives in a way that's hopeful changes everything. So I think there's a spectrum. There's hopelessness on one end. There's hopeful on the, on the other end. And then right in the middle is the actions that go into hope. And you can go from one end to the other in a 20-minute conversation. Um, that means that you can change your life. Yeah. Hope can be learned. It's contagious. Oh, it is learned. It is yep. a learned, it's a learned behavior. It's a learned attitude. Yeah. Um, and it's a learn, I, I look at it, 
So one of the things that um, you had asked me in some earlier questions to sort of some things to think about, how do I stay hopeful um, myself? Because some days are really hard. Um, I spend time doing what you do. I listen to podcasts. I find things that make me feel hope. Sometimes on a real crap day, you'll find me at 11 o'clock at night watching YouTube videos. And it could be, I don't know, X Factor. When you hear somebody go on with a story, they have a talent. But the stories are stories of hope. I'll sit and watch TED Talks. I'll do those kind of things because if you feed your brain hope, that helps you create it. So that one is really critical for me is to sort of celebrate other people's successes. Being that future focused, paying attention to the future, if you look at what's important to you, then it can sometimes make what seems like hopeless activities, hopeless, I'll never get through the laundry. It can be, there can be an end to it. And I'm being very light when I say that one, but that can be part of it. Um, And I think the other part is, is that you have to have people in your life that I describe as my hope holders. They're the people that, um, they're people in our lives who hold on to that faith when we lose it. And they have that faith in us. Those are sometimes family members. They're sometimes family of choice, those friends that are part of it. Um, But you need to have hope holders in your life and people that will help keep you there. And I have about five of those. And if I don't have those people that I can turn to on the days when it's not that I'm hopeless, but I'm just, I'm struggling. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are the people that I can call and I can say, okay, tell me something good. And that's usually my conversation. I have that conversation every day with my husband, with my adult children. I'll say, tell me something good today. And sometimes they struggle, but I push. And Mm -hmm. then I ask them, tell me, ask me, tell ask me to tell you something good, because that something good can be the one thing that sort of sits in my mind that becomes that nugget that I can focus on when I've got to get through some difficult conversations or do some difficult work. <sighs> Those hope holders have helped me sort of solidify there's something there. Kind of like having a worry stone in your pocket or something like that. It's something tangible for me that like makes me feel like I can do more. Oh, I love that. I, hope holders. I yeah. I absolutely Yeah, I absolutely believe that hope is contagious and so if you can borrow it, steal it, you know, otherwise take it from others if you aren't feeling awesome. And then you, you can turn around and, and, and model that behavior out loud or other people when, when you are feeling extra hopeful. Um, Absolutely. You never know what somebody needs to hear or somebody needs to see in, in, in you uh, to make a difference for them. It's true. Now, there's a question that I ask all of my guests at the end of every show, and I feel like you've answered this in uh, one way or another throughout this <laughs> whole time. But... If you could summarize for me, yeah, what, what gives you hope? Oh my, I get, think I get to see hope every day in my work. Um, when you work in mental health and substance use, you see some setbacks, but you see hope every single day. Uh, that that matters to me. Whether it's our guests that come into our welcome center or the folks taking courses, people that listen to our podcast, um, recovery is possible. We have clients that are in counseling, um, people that attend our Survivors of Suicide Loss Day, which is the most difficult day, but a day of hope. When I see these folks that every day, and they're fighting battles like we all are, but they get out of bed, they just keep trying, I see hope. Mm-hmm. The other part for me is that um, I think, again, we talked about hope being an action and hope being something I think that you choose. So for me, 
living what I do with my husband, um, and my husband and I have both had some mental health struggles. Um, mine has been short-lived. His has been much longer and much more challenging. Uh, when I watch him get out of bed every day and I watch him take care of himself, because taking care of himself means he's taking care of me, he's taking care of our adult children, he's taking care of our family business. When someone who has um, the challenges that he's had with depression can still get up every day and can still be a participant in life, can be still the best person that I have in my world, my champion, um, who runs a business successfully, who uh, volunteers, is involved in charity work in all kinds of ways, Every day he gives me hope because his ability to look depression in the face and say, you don't get to win mm -hmm. ever. That's hopeful. And that's my version of recovery. That's my version of uh, someone who has taken some crappy circumstances and some challenging brain stuff and said, nope, you don't get to win. And I'm hopeful that I can change that. He is my hope and my inspiration. That is so wonderful. I so True. The pride that I hear in your voice and I can see in your face for your husband, for your kids, all 50 of them, for, <laughs> for the, the humans you get to interact with every day. Karen, you are an inspiration to me. Um, I hope that this is the beginning of a, of a long relationship between you and I because I have Thank so you. much to learn from you. And I know that the listeners of this, even just this one episode, um, had so many things that they can take away from it. So thank you uh, so, so much for your time. Um, I, I, I can't thank you enough for, uh, for this brief introduction. You know what? It's a pleasure. And where it's a pleasure is that I think that there is a movement and it needs to come out from underground. It needs to come out of the closet. It needs to be out there. And that movement is, is that humans are hopeful and hope lives in humans. And those two things are always intertwined. We just, just like we ha can't be afraid of talking about mental illness, we can't be afraid of talking about things like hope. It's not soft and fluffy. It's real. It's tangible. It's action-based. It's motivating. It's goal-oriented. And it's alive. And we have to keep talking about it. That's amazing. You, you are speaking my language, sister. Thank Yay! You. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so, so much. And I will talk to you again very, very soon. Sounds good. Thank okay, you. Okay, bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this latest episode of the Hope Motivates Action podcast. These episodes are a labor of love. Inspiring conversations with hopeful people make my heart happy. If you also love this episode, it would be amazing if you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Five stars if you're into it. It's these reviews that encourage Apple to promote this podcast to their network. And the more people that listen, the more hope we can spread into the world. Don't forget to check out the show notes of this episode to find all the links to my guests, books, and other resources referenced in this episode. You'll also find the link back to my website where you will find additional support and resources for you, your team, and your community. I truly believe that the future will be better than today by taking action over the things we can control. And hearing from these guests on these episodes, I know that even more hopeful future is totally possible. I'm always looking for inspirational guests, so if you or anyone you know would like to be a guest on the show, please reach out. You can find me on the contact form of my website at expertinhope.com or by email at lindsay at expertinhope.com. When I was a teenager and my sisters were leaving the house to go out for the night, I always made it a point to remind them to call me if they need me. It was my way to tell them that I cared and would always be there for them. I'd love you to know the same, so all of you listening out there, call me if you need me. Again, 
Thank you for your love and support of this podcast, my work in hope, and your intentional focus on making your future better than today. After all, hope without action is just a wish.